You're listening to Silver Threads, the podcast celebrating 25 years of the Hares and Hyenas bookstore in Fitzroy, Melbourne. Supported by the UNESCO City of Literature Known Bookshops Fund, in association with the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives, and in partnership with Melbourne Library Service. Hello and welcome to episode one of the Silver Threads podcast. To start the series off, we'll be listening to an introductory reading from legendary queer writer and activist Joan Nessel. A proud out lesbian, spokeswoman for butch femme desire and a tireless freedom fighter, Joan laid the groundwork for the lesbian, gay and transgender movements of today by claiming her right to her own sexual identity at a time when to do so made her a figure of controversy. Before I I continue reading from what is within A Restricted Country, which, as I said, was published by a feminist press in 1987, I would like to read the original introduction to the book, and that will give some context. History, like so many other things, has been redefined in the past two decades. More and more, we are learning to listen to the individual and collective voices of the people who were once seen only as the victims of history, or as the backdrop for the drama of the rich, the powerful, the heads and muscle of the state. Like painted trees and robust operas, the baker and the housewife and the servant just stood there while kings and queens sang their dreams and dirges around them. Now we have grassroots history projects documenting a vast range of human life, And I've been lucky enough to be a participant in one of these projects, the grassroots lesbian and gay history movement. In doing doing this work, I have learned such things as the complexity and diversity of resistance, the nonchalance of courage, and the tenacity of those who are different. And one more thing, that for gay people, the history is a place where the body carries its own story. I would like this book to be read as history. These stories and essays to be documents of a flesh and a spirit that lived through and were changed by their times. The McCarthy 50s, the activist 60s, the institution building of the 70s, and the renewed social struggle of the 80s. These times leave their mark both on the body and the imagination but it is the body that has been most often cheated out of its own historical language, the body that so often appears as the ahistorical force that we simply carry with us until, for those of us born abled, it tumbled us to the earth, it tumbles us to the earth, a restricted movement. But my body made my history, all my histories, strong and tough, It allowed me to start work at 13. Wanting, it pushed me to find the lovers I needed. Vigorous and resilient, it carried me the 54 miles from Selma to Montgomery. Once, desire had a 50s face. Now, it is more lined. But still, when I walk the streets to protest our military bullying of Central America, this is referring always to the American government, or the Mies Commission on Pornography, or a apartheid in South Africa and here, 
My breasts and hips shout their own slogan. As a woman, as a lesbian, as a Jew, I know much of what I call history others will not. But answering that challenge of exclusion is the work of a lifetime. I have to say at this reading now, I'm 76. So it's always these readings, an encounter of my of me with a younger woman, another woman almost, myself. The women's movement understood the need for a profound breaking of boundaries when it embraced the slogan, the personal is political. And I would like to carry it one step further. If the personal is political, the more personal is historical. The more personal demands attention be paid to how we fill our days and nights as we participate in any given economic system, how our flesh survives under different political systems, how we humanize gender tyranny, how we experience womanness and maleness in all the superstructures of class and race. Erotic writing is as much a documentary as any biographical display. Fantasies, the mockings of the erotic imagination, fill in the earth beneath the movement of great social forces. They tell deep tales of endurance and reclamation. They are a people's most private historic territory. This is why I always wince when a gay activist says we are more than our sexuality, or when lesbian culture celebrants downplay lust and desire, seduction and fulfillment. If we are the people who, who, who call down history from its heights in marble assembly halls, if we put desire into history, into history, if we document how a collective erotic imagination questions and modifies monolithic societal structures like gender, if we change the notion of woman as self-chosen victim by out-public stances and private styles, then surely no apologies are due. Being a sexual people is our gift to the world. We, I and many others like me, were never the leaders of major events or the presidents of national organizations. We filled the ranks, walked the streets, answered the phones, did the mailings, but it was the collective history of our body's desire that helped forge the changes to come. When I joined in founding the Lesbian History Archives, it was not because I wanted power, money, or fame, but because all the experiences of my different identities led me there. My Jewish self that knew memory was a holy thing, never to be bartered or sold. My old femme self that knew the sacredness of a scorned courage. My new feminist self that wanted the delight of a woman-only creation, my socialist self that believed all resources must be shared, my teacher self that had been taught by first world students the burden of colonization and the pain of exile, my psychological self that called on me to carry my mother and her loneliness into my own conflicts about security and freedom, and through them, like a hemp rope binding the parts together, ran my sexual self taking on all these forms of being and rearranging them in stunning new ways. Out of this came the Lesbian History Archives and this book. 
On July 1, 1986, the Reagan Supreme Court, also invoking history, empowered the states to put lesbians and gay men in jail for making love in the privacy of their homes. I mourn this use of history, this resurrection of ancient bigotry, to give life to contemporary fear and hatred of us. History, that huge conglomeration of people and events, is a tricky thing to invoke. Often, one people's history to be glorified and celebrated is another people's hell. One cannot have unquestioning faith in history. It is, as an Italian philosopher said, a paradoxical force rather than a progressive one. We choose a history that we say is ours, and by so doing, we write the character of our people in time. On June 29, 1986, we marched to New York to proclaim our gay pride. One of the chants we chose to throw into the summer air was, from Stonewall to Soweto, the people are resisting. Let this be the history we make ours. December 1986, New York City. The next piece I'm going to read is called The Killing Air. And this is said in, again, in 1950s um, America, which was the, the strength of the McCarthy movement, which was an anti-communist movement, but really it was an anti-difference movement, and it poisoned the air of our country. Uh, it's called The Killing Air. 1943. A strong blonde man held me in his arms, my short skirt lapping over his muscles. My mother stood beside him, looking up at me. With his free hand, he was pulling the Bronx curtain shut. A blackout, my mother said, so the enemy planes can't see our lights. And I have to say, I would have been three. I was born in 1940. 1945. I was home alone, sitting on the living room floor, playing with the encyclopedia volumes my mother had bought from a man who had come to the door. I had made a many-leveled fort out of the big, dark blue squares and peopled them with pennies, standing on their edges as sentinels. Soon I became aware of a low, wailing sound filling the room, along with the rays of sunshine that shone on the wooden floor. I ran to the window and looked up and down the street. Then I realized that the sound was coming from other open windows all around me. Women, their heads covered with aprons, were weeping at the windows, some crying out, Our president is dead! He's dead! All up and down Gun Hill Road, women were keening their loss. I sat, wondering how this death, this sorrow, had made its way into Bronx kitchens smelling from chickens and onions. It was the death of Franklin Roosevelt, who was much loved by working-class people in America at that time. 1949. Mrs. Worthy stood in the front of her desk, a signal to us all that she was going to say something very important. She put her hands behind her and leaned her upper body into us. Now, children, you remember how I've been telling you about the isms that are America's danger? We all nodded. How could we forget the weekly reading Mrs. Worthy made us endure from a book she, obvi she obviously thought was a Bible for the times? Her favorite sermons were on the danger of communism. 
the ism that made her blue-white hair get even bluer and her voice grow deep with sternness. This is National Negro Week, and you all have to write an essay on a famous American Negro. But children, she leaned even closer, there is one man you must not write about. He is a disgrace to this country. I twisted in my seat. His name is Paul Robeson, and he's a communist. The anger and contempt in her voice were too big for this fourth-grade class. Mrs. Worthy was our social studies teacher, and she had already taught me more than she would ever know. Early in the year, she had been lecturing us once again on the evils that plague this country. Only this time, her subject was key children. The trouble with this country, she confided to us, was those key children, those wild children left free to roam the streets by uncaring mothers. These dirty and disrespectful children were lowering the standards of our country. I tried to sink into my seat because I was one of those latchkey children. And as she spoke, the metal key around my neck began to burn into my flesh. Slowly, slowly, I inched my hand up to my sweater. I had already known I was different. I had no father. My mother worked. But I had not known I was a national disgrace. Along with the shame of that day, however, I learned something else that authority often said things that were not true, that were not true about people it did not know, that enemies were made of those who were different, and that I would struggle never to accept dictated hatreds. When Mrs. Worthy said Paul Robeson was an enemy, I immediately knew I had to find out who he was and write about him. After school, I anxiously waited for my mother to come home from work so I could ask her about this man, a great man, she said, who believed in peace. I spent the next day finding out all I could about him and wrote an essay called Paul Robeson, A Great American. Although Mrs. Worthy never spoke to me about it, I had won two gifts of myself, a lifelong appreciation for Paul Robeson's spirit and the knowledge that ideas lived passionately in this world. If I had accepted the voice of orthodoxy in this early skirmish with McCarthy America, I would never have found the courage to, came, to claim my lesbian life 12 years later, 1953 to 1959. In the year 1953, I was 13 years old and new, newly settled with an aunt and uncle in Bayside, Queens. All of Bayside seemed new then, streets without sidewalks, roped-off lots on which houses were to bloom, and always the ubiquitous housing developments managing to look worn even in their infancy. Working people lived in these small red squares, lured from the older boroughs to new homesteads awaiting them at the end of endless subway rides and bus rides. New institutions had to be built to serve the children of these seduced pilgrims, and Martin Van Buren High School was one of them. Constructed to house the overflow from older schools like Jamaica and Bayside High, it lay squat and sprawling along the turnpike. Here, in these new halls, I met Susan Bender, who was to teach me so much. She was an awkward, square, thin young woman who tied her hair tightly back in the demanded ponytail. But in no other way did she adhere to the fashions of her times. She wore long brown skirts, white socks, and moccasins, and walked with her shoulders first. She was open and friendly and alone. 
She and her mother and father lived across from the luncheonette, another artifact on one of the first red brick developments. Susan attracted me. I thought she was butchy, and I sensed a strong body under her unattractive clothes. I was looking for this secret strength even then. I remember one afternoon trying to seduce her in her bedroom, and somehow handcuffs were part of the game. I soon realized, however, that even though Susan looked the part, she was slow to follow my lead. Appearance was not always the same as potential, I had to learn grudgingly. Disappointed with Susan's adherence to her wholesome schoolgirlishness, I went downstairs to visit with her mother. She seemed pleased that Susan had a friend. We sat outside on the two small concrete steps, and she gave me a cup of tea. Flattered by the attention of this older, kind woman, I searched for something mature to say. A vague memory of Susan saying her parents were radical popped into my mind, and at the same time words that were all around me came from my lips. I said something about how communists were turning up everywhere. Then I sat back to watch this woman run, and she did. Her whole demeanor changed. I was looking straight ahead at the spotty earth that passed her backyard, but I was aware of her every movement. Before my words, spoken just to test their power, we had been comrades sitting comfortably side by side on a raw cement step. Afterward, she stopped speaking, drew her hunched shoulders up, and gave a long, deep sigh as if I had disappointed her terribly. Then, in one continuous move, she got up and disappeared into the house. I never spoke to her again. I sat alone, knowing exactly what I had done. I had played with her, sensing she was a hunted person, a ready-made victim for me if I only said the right words, if I hinted I knew, I knew her secret. I, a young girl, had overturned her world, this was the power that floated in the air. Anyone could use it. Malice, carelessness, ignorance could pluck hate from the air and hurl it at a human target. As I sat there through a calculated manipulation of words, I had destroyed a moment of human solidarity. I had felt like an outcast for so, so long myself that I had risen to the bait of making someone else more uncomfortable than I was. I hated myself at that moment, but I had learned another searing lesson. Politics, the battle over ideas going on all around me, was not an abstract discussion, but a weapon aimed at people's hearts. And for one moment, I had held the weapon. Susan's mother obviously did not tell her daughter what had happened, because a few months later, Susan called me all excited, all excited. Did I want to see the Bolshoi Ballet with her? It was their first appearance in America. Now, I had never been to any ballet, and I had no idea who the Bolshoi was. She explained it was the Russian National Ballet Company. The excitement in Susan's voice and the dreariness of my foster home pushed me to say yes. We would have to stand on line for hours, even whole days, to get a standing room ticket, Susan warned. We planned to meet at the bus stop the next day. For the following two weeks, everything else vanished. School, other friends, my aunt and uncle. 
I lived for the glory Susan had brought me. Every day we would meet wearing our line clothes. For me, a shirtwaist, a shirtwaist paisley dress and sneakers. For Susan, her ever-present brown skirt and white socks and loafers. I never changed my outfit. It was the only dress I had, and its print ate up the stains of the sidewalk, the dribbled coffee, the bits of tuna fish. And always there was the lunch that Susan's mother had packed. She was with us. Early in the morning, we'd get our place in line, over the days getting to know our comrades who stood shivering in the cold morning air with us. We huddled against the wall, sat on the street when the sun came out, took turns running for coffee or going to pee in friendly restaurants. The street became our living room. We knew every crack, every inch of that long block. We minutely discussed the performances we had seen the night before, and I heard myself using words that I had just learned. Her points were wonderful. His leaps were so athletic. Russian names, garbled but adored, poured out of me. Plazetskaya, Ulanova, like the young boy in Willie Cather's short story, Paul's Case. I had found a world of romance and wonder, a place where ugliness and loneliness had been replaced by shattering beauty and the glory of human accomplishment. We were always the youngest people on the line and certainly the least knowledgeable. But by the sixth day, we were accepted by the aging ballet students, the retired dancers, the devotees of Russian culture who packed the line. Sometimes, if we were lucky, the Russian dancers would come out for a stroll in the afternoon sun, and we would see them laughing like real people, the men wearing their jackets draped over their shoulders, the women smaller than they appeared on stage, disappearing into their furs. Then, as the sky darkened, we would be given our number, guaranteeing us a place among the elect for the evening's performance. Once inside, we huddled twenty deep along the side walls, held back by a thick maroon rope from the aristocratic crowds that poured down the orchestra aisles every night. Never had I been so close to wealth and to the famous, but vastly more important, Never had I been part of an artistic world. Never had I seen the beauty of movement and heard the splendor of music that I was witnessing because Susan had called me. The wonder of the dances overpowered everything else. When the lights fell and the surging music began, I cared nothing for what was around me or what it all meant. I only knew that Plazetskaya was dying, that her arms were the hurt arms of a gentle swan, and that the music was soothing every wound I had. I accepted the tale of Giselle, the peasant girl who goes crazy and dances with goats. Ghosts, night after night, dancer after dancer, carried me into the peasant's painted cottage, into the dream world of the second act, where ghost-like maidens danced a poignant welcome to the lost lover. The Bronx where I had been born, the mother that I had to leave to live, all retreated before the power of the dancer and the music. Surely I could believe in the transformation of lovers into swans. Was I not transformed by this nightly spectacle? I saw men with muscled thighs throw themselves toward the dark heavens of the theater and return to earth only to soar again. Then one night I saw something else. 
During one of the elaborate ballroom scenes, when the whole corps was on stage, one of the speciality dancers came to the front of the stage to do his famous leap. A small man, dressed in a jester suit, he was well known to the audience. The music swelled, and the dancer began his preparations for his famous leap. He soared high off the stage, with the audience beginning to applaud Wally. But when he landed, he lost his balance and fell. The audience held its breath. He carefully got up, motioned to the conductor, and the same music began again. Once again he prepared himself and leaped even higher. This time his small, whirling body landed perfectly poised, and everyone on the stage and in the audience roared their respect. I had never before seen the dignity of artistic failure, the dedication to accomplishment that outweighed the nightmare of humiliation. I thought then that I had looked into the Russian soul, now, I think, it was the soul of an artist. At the end of each night's performance, a ritual of exuberant mutual appreciation took place. The audience would rush toward the stage, throwing single roses and shouting out the names of their favorite dancers. The dancers approached as close to the end of the stage as they dared and stood clapping their outstretched hands. We learned to shout, Spazibo, Spazibo, the Russian word for thank you. Whenever I said it, I felt as if I had traveled around the world, as if I had left the America of the 50s far behind me. After the performances, Susan and I would attach ourselves to a group of older and wiser standees who gathered in, all night, in the all-night automat to savor the performance. We never asked permission to come along. We just followed the group, knowing our place of respectful silence. We would sit at the end of the table, coffee and donuts in front of us, drinking up their dedication. These were not fashionable people. They looked poor and rumpled, but they were at the heart of what we were experiencing. An older black woman, her hair pulled tightly back into a bun, was the leading figure in the group. She strongly, but lovingly, pointed out all the faults and wonders of the performers. Gesturing with long, thin fingers, she compared Pozeskaya's moves to those of another dancer we did not know. French words, technical terms, shouts of disagreement flowed across the table. Hour after hour, the dance went on. Susan and I would ride the subway late at night, exhausted, blissful, back to the barrenness of Bayside. One night, as we were half asleep on the train, I took out of the pocket of my dress, which was creased and dirty from the days on the sidewalk, a few crumbs of bread and held them in the palm of my hand for Susan to see. An old woman sitting across from us got up, lurched across the aisle, and put a dollar in my outstretched hand. I couldn't understand and tried to return it to her, but she just kept shaking her head no, gesturing with her hand that I should keep it. I realized what I must have looked like. Dirty, hair wild, torn sneakers, a handful of crumbs. But my eyes, they were shining. My heart was full of richness. I had been in another world far from the grayness of my youth. I had been with people who had a passion, a discipline. I had spoken a foreign word in a forbidden tongue. I had found another air to breathe.